This week on a lively experiment, the continued fallout from the U.S. withdrawal in Afghanistan, what our local delegation has to say. And we introduce you to the winner of this year's Rhode Island PBS scholarship. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, Leanne Senek, National Committee Woman for the Rhode Island Republican Party. Bill Lynch, former chairman of the Rhode Island Democratic Party. Plus, attorney and legal analyst, Lou Colmer. Hello everyone, I'm Jim Hummel. We will have the latest on the mess that is Afghanistan a little later. But first up, Governor McKee reversed course on Thursday, ending what some felt was mixed messaging by issuing an emergency order requiring all students to mask up indoors when they return to school next month. Um, a lot of people, Lou, felt he should have done this weeks ago. The governor was trying to let the local communities do it, but I think just the public pressure was probably too much, right? It has to be. I think when you look to the left and you look to the right, Massachusetts and Connecticut, and they're all going to have mask requirements, maybe he's thinking they know something I don't, or God forbid something really bad happens here. I don't want to be the guy who's going to get blamed for it. So the easier decision is to say we're going to mask up. We're so used to the emergency orders under Gov Governor Raimondo, and I appreciate that McKee wanted to let the locals make the decision. Do you think he misestimated the, there was a lot of blowback, like, hey, we need leadership from the state house on this? No, I don't think so. I think the governor's doing the exact right thing. If there's one thing we've learned from this pandemic, you know, now that it stretches into its second year, is that it changes, it's volatile, uh, it's unpredictable. So I think the governor is doing uh, the right thing. He's listening to to the medical people, the doctors, getting input as he's always done from uh, a lot of different people, and then trying to make informed decisions. And and look at this is the kind of thing that might change day to day. I mean, he, we may find out two weeks from now that he says, look, you know, I'm being told and I believe and I'm advised and I'm making a decision. We don't need masks. So. I don't know what the rush is. It's 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 not hard. It's not like you know we have to suddenly produce a million masks and we didn't have two weeks' notice to do it. Um, and I have to say, I have an eight-year-old grandson who's going into the third grade, and you know he gets up and and pops on his mask and takes off to school and doesn't think twice about it. I mean, it, it's I don't know if that's good or bad that that's become sort of an ingrained part of what these kids are doing. But I don't see the problem with the kids. Uh, I think it's become, I think Lou's right, I think it's become a little bit of a, of a political football, um, you know, with the adults. Obviously, some parents are dead set against it. Um, the teachers union now is kind of weighing in as are some of the health care workers in Rhode Island because of the governor's, you know, recent decision to require that health care workers um, be vaccinated. So, look, it, it's a horrible thing that we're living through. Um, and, and hopefully we're going to come out on the other side. But I think in the meantime, there are going to be decisions made. And some of them are going to be better than others. There will be missteps. There already have been. Um, but I think the, the, the governor uh, is, is doing the right thing. Leanne? Well, I, I'm confused um, by this whole thing because everything is changing daily. And at first we were told we don't need masks. Then we were told to wear masks. Then we don't need masks. We're going back and forth. The vaccinations were supposed to help people. Now you can still pass um, you know, COVID with being vaccinated. There's just so much 
misinformation out there that it's hard for anyone, particularly parents, to make an informed decision on any of this. So how, how do you, how do you decide what's the right thing to do? Is it, as Bill said, is it cha making your decisions based on changing conditions? I think there's, it's both. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of everything. I mean, we don't know. Who do we turn to to really get a really firm answer on what? The, we don't have enough information to base everything on the science as we're being told to do. The CDC right. has not done a good job in messaging. No. And, and messaging and informing people on how COVID actually works and how it spreads and how we can protect ourselves. And we're so fixated on masking and masking our kids going to school. Why aren't we talking about keeping our distance while we're there in the schools? Why aren't we talking about sanitizing their hands? Do we have enough... There's Lysol back on the shelves now. That's one supply chain that's come back. There's plenty of sanitizer. There's plenty of hand sanitizer. Why aren't we talking about these other well, ways to mitigate you, this? Because it's interesting that they've said it, masking, but it's the three-day, you don't have to quarantine if yeah. you mask, stuff that and we And I don't understand why we're not going to not quarantine. If, if kids come into contact with COVID and they're exposed to it, they're not going to quarantine. Isn't that more of a danger to put them in that setting knowing that there is COVID present I'm going to do you one better, and I think we can all agree because we've all heard it, and there's no disputing this. The masks don't work. No. But we're wearing cloth, we're wearing silk, we're wearing satin, we're wearing paper. The only thing that really works are the N95s, and we aren't wearing those. So you have to take all that into consideration and say, we're just playing games here. I'm not yeah. sure you would agree that the masks don't work. No, and anytime Lou stops by something by saying, we'd I all think we'd all agree. <laughs> I immediately, immediately wake up and say, wait a minute, something bad's going to happen right now. <laughs> Look, I think the masks help. I, I don't think they're the answer, but I think, I think that they help. Um, but look at the real big issue is the one that, you know, it's uncomfortable to talk about is this whole issue of, of vaccinations and why... Uh, in a country where we have sufficient supply of vaccination, are there places where the vaccination rates are as low as they are? And it, it's, it's very frustrating. I find it very discouraging. I respect people's opinion on that issue, but I don't agree with it. And, I've, and, and you know, I have people say to me, well, that's Florida, that's Texas, but I, I deal with people regularly in Rhode Island in, in my business and have this discussion. And, and there, there are those that there's no way in a world that they're going to get vaccinated. And they, they sort of repeat what I consider to be these falsities about the vaccine and, and the government and putting chips in people and tracking what you're doing and all these things where, you know, but it's because realistically the government has lost the trust of the people. Well, I think there's a lot of mixed messages. I think that social media, you know, which is here to stay is not. I think helpful. we could all agree about that. Right, Lou? Yeah. But we social media is here to stay. <laughs> no, no, we can all agree. <laughs> <laughs> no. So I, but I think it's, it's interesting that I think the governor was trying to say, just like we're kind of in the blue bubble up here. Just like Rhode Island and Massachusetts have very high vaccination rates, we're not Florida, Louisiana, or Texas. Look, Johnston may be different from Woonsocket, may be different from Newport, may be different from Barrington. So you guys the one, make your the, decision right. based on your best and, information. And you have to remember, this governor is very, very different from the last governor. Indeed. And this governor has always, this is not new for Dan McKee, this governor, when he was a lieutenant governor, remember he was the mayor before that, he has a history, and it's ingrained in who he is, of dealing with these local mayors and these cities and towns and trying to respect sort of their integrity and, and listen to them. And you're right. This governor feels very strongly that 
every city and town through their mostly through their mayor should have some input into what happens in their city and town i think he's trying to stick to that as best it's he almost can. like the local equivalent of states rights right yep. your mm -hmm. your local do what you need i also think it got political though because now you have nelly gorbea and seth magaziner <clears throat> and, and i thought mckee was almost like brushing a gnat off of his thing going this is a this is a move for relevance you have seth magaziner or his um, his consultant saying, we need real leadership, and that's why my people are going to mask up. And that's what we don't need right now. We right? don't politics. need that, the politics in that. No, because we should be able to have faith in the government and the CDC and the messengers they're putting out, even as mixed as it is. And that's why you have so much conflict over this, I think, because we haven't gotten strong, clear messages, and we don't have the science to back it up because there hasn't been a long enough time period to say this vaccine is safe for this amount of time, it's effective for this amount and, of time. And to that we're, end, we're, we're not far enough into this to, to be able to have that kind of data. And, and that's why I can accept what Bill was saying is that, you know, we have to flow with the times here because this is all brand new. Right now, all they can tell us is that the vaccine is good for seven months or eight months because that's as long as we've had the vaccine. So they may find and out. And a lot of us will be coming up on that September, October, November, right? And they yes. may very well find out in the 10th month that all of a sudden the vaccines aren't working anymore. So I accept the fact that. That changes. That everything changes. Well, look, six or seven months ago, there was no Delta variant, right? Exactly. So so six or seven months from now, um, There'll be you know, a Lambda I'm concerned variant. that there's, there's going to be another, you know, activity uh, that we're going to have to deal with. And. And it's a challenge for everybody, including the, the medical people. Um, I agree, however, that you know politicizing this is not helpful. And I think that if there's anything that should be nonpartisan and people should try to get on the same page, it would be on this particular issue. I don't think the average you know man, woman in Rhode Island is is excited about a political debate about who's the first one to call for masks. Masking is right, this. and to make points politically we don't need that at this point but I think people too um, are fatigued by this I mean we're still it's new but it's old we've been doing this for over a year now businesses have been complying with different varying regulations changing from day to day having to adapt to all of those changing things people are tired of this but if that's and we got that little bit of hope at the end of the tunnel when we started loosening those regulations and you could go back to going out to eat and going back to seeing your family and no one wants to go back mm -hmm. to that lockdown but i think stage. that snapshot that's in time true. you talk about the evolving science when one of the incentives particularly for high school kids to get it was hey you won't have to wear a mask if you come back this fall right. or if you get vaccinated and then we didn't account for unvaccinated people, the asymptomatic spread. That's what we're learning, right? I mean, it's it's evolving by the week. Look, I, I don't I don't want to keep banging the drum, but I mean, if you look at the numbers, they, there are some numbers that just don't lie. And across the country, the people that are dramatically sick and dying, nine, uh, 95 or 98 percent of them are those that are unvaccinated. So, um, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's extremely discouraging to me, and, 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 and it's an issue where if you're dead set against the vaccine, that's fine, but it's not just you that you're impacting, you know? I mean, you can, you can decide you don't want to drink alcohol. You can decide you don't want to, you don't care about medical marijuana. You don't want to use marijuana. But if you're refusing to get the vaccine, it's not just, you know, a decision that this is my body and I don't want to be told I have to get a vaccine. You're putting the lives of other people at dramatic risk. Yeah. Um, 
but not if you're vaccinated. So if, if you are vaccinated, you're mitigating that risk for yourself. And I think that comes down to the individuality of all of this, that you have that right to choose for yourself if you want to take that chance or not. And other people are taking chances that they're going to protect themselves from. So they're going to use protective equipment. They're going to use sanitizer. They're going to get vaccinated if they feel that way. And people who feel that strongly about it don't have to take that kind of precaution for other people. But what's people perplexing to me is that <clears throat> those people that don't want to get vaccinated, and I've I've talked to them right here in Rhode Island. They don't have to travel outside the state. You hope they're never going to get sick. But I also deal with a lot of doctors, and they do get sick, and they end up in the hospital, which, and, and then they're pleading with these same doctors who pleaded with them to get the vaccine to give them any medication that help. they can that will now help them, including the vaccine. Right. The, the best, so the best it just doesn't make any sense the, to me. I, I danced out of my second vaccine shot. I was <clears> like, <throat> I was on cloud nine. Uh, what I, I think is very powerful is they're going down to Florida, they're going to Texas into the ICUs, and they're doing interviews that they're showing on TV of the people who refuse to get vaccinated now near death on ventilators. And I think those are the most powerful and vivid uh, videos that we can. There was a doctor in Alabama, the Washington Post had a great story, you may have seen it, that he said, he put a sign on his door, he said, I will not treat you unless you've been vaccinated. And he wasn't, and a lot of people thought that was a little extreme. He said, I've watched too many people die. And he said, I've seen it where they, you know, they have buyer's regret or, you know, deathbed confessions or whatever. He said, I just can't go through that again. And he said, actually, five people got vaccinated because of that sign. Good. So that's yeah. not, you know, it's little by little. The final thing on this before we move on, the economy, because you worry about Rhode Island. We've got this flush of uh, we're flush with federal money. But you wonder about the economy and how this is affecting businesses. Now, McGee has held the line. He's not doing, you know, he's leaving it up to businesses mm -hmm. for indoor masking. But you wonder, we're in the summer as we get into the winter again. How's that going to be? Well, again, we'd have to look at the numbers at that time and see if there are increases and if, where these things are coming from. But one of the things that we haven't really looked about and delved into enough is natural immunity. Um, people, we haven't looked at people who are not getting vaccinated who still are not getting sick from this. Why aren't we figuring out who has natural immunity and saying those people, you don't need to get the vaccine? What, what's causing them to have that immunity? It, you know, all of these things that we, we're looking at, we're not putting it all together to make that big final picture. Yeah, and, and, the, and the health department needs to also, I think they're looking at now, the numbers, look, we're doing great in terms of hospitalization. Uh, I think the infection rate's gone up, but going into the hospital with COVID as opposed to because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And that's it. You could break your leg and they go in and they give you a test. Oh, you have COVID. Well, right. that's considered as a number. So, um, all right, let's, <laughs> let's move on. Uh, Afghanistan, where to begin? Um, this has just been so sad and tragic. Uh, Bill, let's, let's begin with you. I think the president has a lot of uh, answering to do. Oh, and what, what's, particularly for him, he had built up a lot of momentum and he gotten the infrastructure bill and everything. And now he's just consumed now with Afghanistan, particularly while trying to fight well, a pandemic. Yeah, I would, I would say two things. And it's really two separate issues, right? One is getting out of Afghanistan as a decision. No one's really criticizing that, not to any great extent. And, and Joe Biden has campaigned for years that he was going to get us out of Afghanistan. It was Donald Trump said the same thing. It was the execution. Well, that, that's, so that's the second issue is, OK, now that that decision's been made, what about the way it unfolded? And look, it, I, it's a complicated issue. There's no question about it. Um, I, I think that clearly um, we were not prepared for the country to fall the way it did, for the Taliban, you know, to march across the country as quickly as they did. Why weren't we prepared? I don't know. I'm 
comfortable with the fact that we have, of, of all the states in the country, Senator Jack Reed, who is going to participate along with Shelton Whitehouse in, in an immediate oversight starting next week on this very issue. And if there's anybody who is qualified to look at what happened and figure out why it happened the way it did, it's Jack Reed. But you know so. it's pretty serious when the Rhode Island delegation criticizes an incumbent Democrat. Yeah. Jack Reed had warned um, Biden before this that this was not the right way to do this. There are all reports now coming out that the intelligence was not there in order to support pulling out the way that we did. Um, and either uh, the president has forgotten those reports or he's lying about getting that information. And that's something that we really need to get to the bottom of because it, if this was a matter of generals and secretaries coming in and saying, this is not what we should be doing, this is the information we're getting from on the ground and this is not going to work or it's going to fall this quickly or not, is the president getting bad information or is he lying about well, the information that he got? Mark Milley, who, who has been there for a long time, he's a career guy, he said there was no intelligence we had that this would happen. That makes me even more concerned. Yeah. Well, the breadth and depth of this debacle is absolutely breathtaking. Uh, to the extent that I, I actually made notes because I did not want to leave out the breadth of what we're dealing with. This is the first time a terrorist group has taken control of a democratic nation. And they did it in less than a week. That's number one. They are now the wealthiest terrorist group in total control of a nation because they now control the world's opiate or poppy uh, fields. And that means that they have deriving wealth for the rest of their existence, which is And they have perpetuity. millions of dollars of our equipment well, to we're use against that. us. They now have complete possession and control of 600,000 U.S. military weapons with amazing top technology. They also have control of 75,000 military vehicles, 200 aircraft, including Black Hawk helicopters. Now, this is what they've achieved in just one week. Oh, they also have $85 billion in U.S. funds that was meant to pay for the military in Afghanistan. So what does the president do to fix this, Lou? Oh, he, he, <laughs> we've now proven to the rest of the world that we are unreliable partners. M Moscow, well, start with China. Uh, they're obviously aimed on taking control of Taiwan, and we're supposed to be Taiwan's <coughs> ally in preventing that. Right now on mass media, China is doing mass productions to the Taiwanese people. If you think you can rely on the U.S., watch carefully what's happening in Afghanistan. Russia, following China's lead, is doing the exact same thing in the Ukraine. Our allies, Boris Johnson in England, he tried for 48 hours to be able to get Biden on the phone, and he couldn't do it. They are so upset, our NATO allies, because unilaterally, because you, you, because unilaterally, we decided to withdraw and abandon up to 15,000 American citizens. But how about their citizens who are also, they've got up to, up to 30,000 citizens in Afghanistan, and we abandoned them along with the U.S. citizens. So what can the president do? I, I, I disagree on, on this part of it, and that's why I started saying it's really two issues. <clears throat> the Boris Johnsons of the world knew that we were going to get out of Afghanistan. Donald Trump campaigned on getting out of Afghanistan. That's so these, not an issue. So our allies, what our allies knew this was coming. Now, there's no dispute about that. The second part is, and I started by saying that obviously this was not well conceived and certainly was not well executed. I don't consider myself a military expert. I'm very interested to see what Senator Reid and Senator Whitehouse and others have to say when they are able to get the facts and find out what led up to this. And I think that we should take a, a breath. In the meantime, fortunately, 
the the process is continuing. It's become more rapid in terms of getting people out of there, um, mostly, uh, particularly our American citizens. And there's been, so far at least, um, that the the dramatic uh, damage in terms of lives lost has has been less than people might have anticipated. It's been a mess. There's no question. But this whole about PR that. campaign, the kinder <clears throat> and gentler Taliban, <laughs> right? Who tell, believes that? Tell that to the women of Afghanistan that are going to suffer under that the most. You have women that have been born in Afghanistan in the past 20 years that have never known Taliban rule. Mm. They've gone to school. They've gotten educated. They've had opportunities that will all be taken away from them because of this. Because well, we let that, this ball that, drop. I, and people I, I agree with that completely. It's and, horrific. And to, to be a woman and to live there is is just, it's hard to even imagine it. But that's not our, in all fairness, that's what Donald Trump has been saying, Joe Biden. That's not our job for the next hundred years to stay there and run Afghanistan and send young men and women from the United States to pay, in many cases, the ultimate sacrifice to oversee and to run Afghanistan. We went in there 20 years ago to get bin Laden and to get the terrorists that were, that were being harbored there. To get Al-Qaeda out. We did a job there, then we stayed. We've, for over 20 years, we've had American soldiers, men and women, lose their lives. We've spent billions and billions and billions of dollars there. And clearly, the Afghan government and the Afghan army had no real interest in ever stepping up and taking charge of their own country so we could leave. So both parties had made the decision to get out of Afghanistan. It's un very unfortunate for the people, in my opinion, that live there, particularly the women. Um, but that well, decision if, was made. What if they had, okay, what if there had been better planning to get them out? To get everybody out, and then what's happening now happens. Secretary of Defense Austin, two days ago, when he actually, for the first time, was speaking about it, he said we had to make a decision as to whether we were going to protect our embassy with the troops on the ground or we were going to protect the, uh, the Air Force base. Uh, and they chose the embassy. By shutting down Bagram Air Force Base and withdrawing our troops, we lost two major runways for, for takeoffs and we lost the security and national uh, security of, of where that was located. And the reality is as a world power, we will never be able to regain our dignity after what has happened. We are now pleading with the Taliban to allow our people to get to the Air Force Base so we can get them out of there. We are pleading with the Taliban to help us. After the president already pled with them to not hurt our embassy. Um, and the fact that our embassy is abandoned, China, Russia, Sweden, many other countries still have embassies there. The, China is eating our lunch on this whole thing. They're already talking about helping the Taliban to rebuild the country of uh, Afghanistan. That's because of the rare earth metals. Afghanistan has the richest rare earth metals, which is what China wants and Russia wants more than anything. And they now will have possession of all those rare earth metals. Why? Because the Taliban can't go into the ground to get them. They don't have the technology. They will bring Russia and China in, and China will benefit, and they will continue to eat our lunch. And when we talk about the reasons that we went into Afghanistan to, to prevent terrorist cells from building there, that's going to happen just as quickly again. So all we're doing is saying that we wasted this. All these resources over the past 20 years have all been for naught because we haven't been able to, to stop the idea that the Taliban can take over that quickly. And then these terrorist cells are going to be rebuilding again. Just and in this, in this chaos that's there, who's to say that these people, we don't know how many Americans are still in Afghanistan. Yeah. I got to hold you. It's chaos. And I, we don't know who's coming out of Afghanistan at this point either. I got to hold you. Billy and Lou and Leanne, thank you. It's quick. And if it <laughs> seems quick, that's because finally we have a special segment to end this week's program. 
Tara Monastes is this year's winner of the Rhode Island PBS Scholarship, awarded to a high school or college student pursuing a career in broadcasting, communications, or journalism. Tara, who is the fourth winner we've had, is a graduate of Tollgate High who starts this week at Mount Holyoke College. I sat down with her earlier this month to talk about an internship she had with the Warwick Beacon, her future plans in journalism, and how this scholarship will help her pursue those plans. And we are back. Tara, so glad to have you. First of all, congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so excited. Well, it's an exciting time in your life. And tell me, so we'll go back and, and talk about your interest in journalism and you got a firsthand look at it. You're heading to Mount Holyoke in the fall. Oh, yeah. I'm so excited. Uh, I never imagined going to a women's college or like a small liberal arts college, but um, when I toured it, I completely fell in love with it. And uh, I'm looking at all their opportunities that they have um, for the majors, the majors I'm looking into, and it's really exciting to think about. The whole point of this scholarship that we set up was, look, I'm on the back end of my career. You are the future of journalism. And there's so many areas to go into, and broadcast, and there's audio and production and everything else. You've already gotten a taste of journalism. And tell me about that. You started the Warwick Beacon several years ago. Yeah, I met John Howell when he was covering uh, a National History Day competition I was doing, and I had submitted a historical paper. And he was like, oh, if you're really into writing, you, can, you should consider doing an internship here. And uh, I started doing it, and it was really difficult at first, you know, getting used to, like, how hectic everything can be. But I found out that I really liked how hectic it was. I really liked, uh, you know, the idea of running around, meeting all these interesting people. I think a lot of teenagers uh, think their hometown is kind of like a boring place that you have to, like, escape from and, like, go out into, like, the real world. But it made me realize that Warwick is, like, a fascinating community. It has so much history. There are so many people doing, like, so many important things every day, like, whether it's charity, whether it's education. And uh, I really got into, like, feeling the vibe of a community and, like, sharing that with other people. So he threw you right in, right? He uh, said, go, we're giving <laughs> you the assignments, and they're going to be in the paper. But yeah, it was day one. I, th I was like, I'm going to be, like, shuffling papers or whatever. And I got in, and he's like, get in the car. We're going to cover, like, a youth camp. And I was like, oh. And uh, I got used to that pace uh, after a while, and I, I to really love it. What about the rush of being able to do one? It's kind of instant gratification unless you're working on a long piece. Your piece comes out. Hey, there's your byline. Mm -hmm. And then do people start to notice you were writing for the paper? Yeah, I would have teachers come up to me and mention it. Um, I would have like my friends' parents would like clip the articles I did, which is really sweet of them. And, uh, you know, you get like it on Facebook and everything. And uh, I just like love reading what um, people have to say about what I've written. I love it when it's like brought attention to something that maybe otherwise wouldn't have gotten so much attention. And uh, I think it's like a really satisfying way to contribute to the community. Being a reporter is not easy these days. Journalism has changed. A lot of the media is under fire. Does that concern you at all? Or do you think I want to be part of the next generation? Uh, so going forward, I think a lot about ethics. I think a lot about uh, covering an issue in a way that isn't biased, but at the same time is sympathetic towards those who need sympathy and um, bringing attention to issues that I think are important. And I know it's going to be a really difficult kind of balance to strike, and I think that's something that's always a part of journalism, but I kind of enjoy that challenge. I enjoy the idea of um, looking at a story and um, looking at a situation and bringing the story out of it and uh, seeing all different sides and, like, really creating like a narrative. Well, you've already taken your first journalism class. You know about <laughs> doing yeah, all sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to find that when you get to school. Did you have one story that stood out in your mind over the last couple of years that you really liked? Uh, there have been a couple. Um, I know there was one that I did. The last one I did recently was on the uh, Masonic Medical Center, which um, rents, um, well, it doesn't rent it. They, give them, they rent it out 
loan it out for free to um, people who need medical equipment, whether it's like wheelchairs, whether it's canes. And uh, I actually um, got the idea because my mother has cancer and she needed a wheelchair. So we went in there and that's how I learned about it and I really wanted to cover that um, to kind of bring attention to like, I think this is like a really great service. Like they've helped my family personally. And uh, I think it could help like a lot of other people as well. And people wouldn't it. have known about it had you not written about it. Some people, right? Yeah, a lot of people find out about it from their doctors. But I, um, I enjoyed the opportunity to like bring a more public attention to um, to a service like that that's really really valuable. Finally, what's this scholarship going to do for you? So as a first generation college student, it's going to enable me to be a lot more fearless. It's going to enable me to go forward without having to worry about the financial burden of college. Uh, it's going to be really exciting to be able to explore all these opportunities and not have to worry, to not really put any pressure on my family in terms of uh, financials. And uh, it's definitely going to enable me to pursue journalism um, like as fearlessly as possible. That's the word I keep thinking of as fearless, you know, going forward and uh, really making a change without worrying about um, financial costs or anything like that. you got to be fearless in this business. <laughs> we wish you the best of luck, and we look forward to wow. having you come back and tell us how things have been going. Oh, I would love to. Thank uh, you so much. All right, thank you, <laughs> folks. That is all the time we have. We appreciate your coming back and watching us every week. Come back next week as a lively experiment continues. Experiment is generously underwritten by. For more than 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program and Rhode Island PBS.